Just wear a fucking mask. Don't go places you shouldn't. Yeah, I saw someone at Walmart when we were running errands yesterday, standing in front of us that wasn't wearing a mask. So Elise and I were just like, 12 feet away from you, motherfucker. I can't believe they allowed that. They're not supposed to, but they fucking do. They're supposed to stop people at the door and turn them away, but they don't because there's not actually a mandate for it. And a lot of places I've seen, even if they do, the people just go into the store and then take the mask off like as soon as they're past yeah. the door. If my fat ass can wear a mask for the whole time I'm in the grocery store with my asthma and my fatness, you can too. I wear a mask for 12 hours a day when I'm at work. Yeah. I mean, I would be too if we were still in office. Not 12 hours, but eight. But yes, anyway. Uh, Hi, welcome to The Strange and Unusual, where we discuss The Strange and Unusual. This is episode 48 of our series, seeking out the weird, the unexplained, and the devious from around the world. I'm Casey. And I'm Roya. And today we are exploring the dark corners of Chile. What are you talking about? I'm going to be telling you, and I know, uh, everybody take out your surprised faces when we're talking about the Chinchorro mummies of Chile. So shocking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They're, uh, they're a wild bunch. I'm sure. I think you can only describe mummies as a wild bunch if it's like the Brendan Fraser mummy movie. Like, where they're, like, coming to life and hunting you down and scared of cats. That's a wild bunch of mummies. I don't know. I guess you'll have to wait and see. Well, since you care so much, I'm talking about warlocks. Like, wow, warlocks? Like, brujos. Wizards. Bruja? Brujo. Male. Oh, brujo. Male. <laughs> She's a brujo. <laughs> That's insensitive. Uh, You're racist. It is insensitive. You're racist. Uh, I'm white. I'm sorry. <laughs> the um, our leftist agenda. Yeah. Soapbox. I tried to explain somebody, explain somebody, <laughs> explain to somebody what white privilege was, and it did not go well. They are old enough to be my mother, so I. It was. It was already like a downhill climb or a, a uphill, uphill battle. battle. <laughs> downhill climb. I don't know what the fuck I'm saying. I'm so so excited um <laughs> so yeah it was already an uphill battle like i was like oh fuck this is not gonna work and i was like they just kept saying to me hey i've worked really hard to be where i am i'm not privileged and i was like no okay that's not what that means listen i'm gonna give you the straight tea i said yes you struggled and nobody's trying to say that you didn't struggle or earn what you worked for what we're saying is if you and a person of color were on the exact same playing field from point a to point b no matter how much you struggle, that person is already at a disadvantage simply because the color of their skin. You could have the same economic background, the same uh, family build, you know, that person, because of the way society is uh, built to be against them, has a disadvantage that you did not have. Yeah. Even though you still struggled. And I mean, a woman does have her own... Like, there's white male privilege, too. And, yeah, it's the, um, no one is saying that your struggle isn't valid. They're saying that your struggle wasn't exacerbated by the color of your skin. Yes. Yeah. They're saying that even despite your struggles, imagine what that had to be like in the exact same situation 
if you were a person of color. That's a really interesting um, video I've seen a few times where it was kind of like a a fast social experiment Mm -hmm. where they had just a bunch of like freshmen or something in college and they had men, women, black, white, Asian, different people of color, things like that. And they all have them lined up in a line. And the person says, every time Mm -hmm. I say something and it is true for you, step forward. And it was just like, you know, your parents are still together. Step forward. It's just like almost all of the white people step forward. It's Mm -hmm. like, you know, you had a car at 16. You had this thing. You had this thing. And then you know they have the people at the front like they tell them when they get all the way to the end and say look back this is what white privilege is and almost all of the black people involved with this are still at the starting line or a step or two ahead yep whereas the the especially the young white men are all the way at the finishing line already yep and that was one of the moments where I was like, okay, that, like, I get it. Like, I, I mm-hmm. can see it in with my eyes now and understand. Not not to say that I didn't believe it, because I did, but it helped seeing, like... Having a, a visual. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's like the... I, I understood Black Lives Matter in a really weird, in a really strange way. I was listening to Macklemore's album. I really enjoy a lot of his music. And he has this song on one of his albums where it is talking about his struggle with being a white rapper. And like, is this appropriation? Can I lend my voice or is it, you know, seen as, oh, here's another white guy making money off of our, you know, skill and talent and whatever doing what we started and there's a line at the end of the song where it's like different recordings of black lives matter leaders and stuff and one of them is talking and it was saying he was saying that say you have a fire in your neighborhood Mm -hmm. and the fire department shows up they don't put fire on the houses that aren't on fire because all houses matter they're putting fire on the house that's on fire because it's on you fire. You mean water? Yeah. Water on the, the house that's on fire. <laughs> I was like, please don't put fire on my house. It's on fire. Yeah. <laughs> You're putting water on the house that's on fire because it's on fire at that moment. Like, that's what Black Lives Matter is all about. And I was like, whoa, I understand now. I can see into the future. <laughs> like, my, my brain has been taken to another plane of thought. So mine is kind of dark and weird. I'm assuming that mummies are not as dark and weird because they're just mummies. I mean, they're literal dead people, but you know. Yeah, but they're not like murdered people. Uh, I yeah, I would say that's correct. Probably. All right, so I'll go first. I apologize in advance for all of the mispronunciation of everything that we're going to say forever today. <laughs> yeah, accurate. Uh, so Chiloe is an island off of the coast of Chile known for its rolling green hills, old churches, quaint farmland, and oh, it's warlocks. This is so exciting. I'm so excited. <laughs> so Chiloe used to have some brujos or warlocks 
that lived in caves and fucked with the villagers. I'm on board. This is a real thing that did happen. There is historical evidence about this group. Um, so it all started when Jose de Moraleda y Montero was challenged and defeated by Huliche Machi Chichipila? 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 In a duel of witchcraft, obtaining a book of European magic as a reward. So Moraleda tried to escape from giving uh, Chilipila the book, and she allegedly caused his ship to run aground and forced him to give her the book. Um, this allowed Chilipia to gain access to the magic from Europe to teach the indigenous people of Chile. And according to legend, the society worked out of a cave that was guarded by a deformed being called an imbunche, which we'll have more about later. In this cave, the Book of Magic was kept as well as the testing and training facilities for the Society of Brujos. The cave measured approximately 200 meters long by 3 meters high and contained many, tor- many rooms lit by torches and jugs of human oil. Wait, what? <laughs> Uh, the warlocks are said to be able to fly using a makun, which is... No, 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 wait, 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 wait. Human oil? Yep. Like avocado oil, but with people. Yep, like grapeseed oil, but with people. Like olive oil, but with people. Like coconut oil, but with people. Uh, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Sorry, now you may continue. <laughs> so the warlocks are said to have been able to fly using a makun, which is kind of like a magical vest. Um, that was made from the skin of a dead virgin's chest. Now, now, okay. <laughs> a magical vest, Buffalo Bill style. Yep. Would you? I feel like I just need to sit back and, and take in what you're saying would, and stop would asking you fuck questions. Because they'd fuck them. Fuck them so hard. I would not. I would not fuck them. So they had the ability to fly using the magical skin vest uh, to turn into <laughs> certain animals to inflict harm from a distance so they could cause a family to fall ill or a unexpected death to happen. Their knowledge of plants and animals also enabled them to brew powerful potions. They also are said to be able to tame the Cabello Marino Chilote, which is the Chilote Hippocampus, which if you don't know what a hippocampus is, it's like half horse, half fish. The hippocampus is a part of your brain. It's also a mythological creature that is half fish oh, and half horse. Uh, I had to look up because when I looked up what the fuck a hippocampus was, that's all that came up. And I was like, hippocampus creature. And then the, the half fish, half horse came up. Um, and they are able to safely board a legendary ghost ship in the area called the Calhueche. They are also said to be weak to salt. Well, good. All right, so let's talk about those deformed creatures I mentioned earlier. The Mbuche. Golem. So basically what happens is there's two options. There is either a a firstborn son kidnapped before they turn nine days old, or a family that sells their child to the Brujos. If the child was baptized, 
the warlocks debaptize him. How do they do that? There's a a whole big thing. I get into how they how you become a brujo in the end. Uh, so we'll talk about right, that. Cool. But the brujo chelote transforms the child into a deformed hairy monster by breaking his right leg and twisting what? it over his back. I'm breaking specifically the right yeah. leg. And then twisting it over their back so it's like resting on their neck. Like their foot is resting on their neck. That sounds painful. Um, And they also, uh, I found one article where it talks about how they would disjoint them. So they would like pull all of their joints out of the sockets and like twist them. Ew. And like their arms and legs, their fingers, their toes, their shoulders... And specifically their head. And so they would take their head and they would slowly, over a amount of time, twist their head using various clamps and until the child's head was able to look down its own spine. Uh. During its first months, the mbuche is fed on black cat's milk and goat flesh. And then once the first few months are over, it is fed with human flesh from the cemeteries. Because they gotta get those, uh, macoon fancy skin vests and human oil from something. And they might as well use the flesh. Of the already deceased? Yeah. Not like they're killing people and taking their flesh? Not yet. They're already dead? Not yet. Okay. <laughs> um, they are used as guards of the cave. And the Mbuche can only leave the cave... If the cave is destroyed or discovered, uh, the warlock that is responsible for him moves to another cave. Uh, the warlock is going to Warlock Con to meet the other warlocks. Yep. Or when the warlock carries it, thrashing and screaming, scaring the townspeople and announcing misfortune to come. Oh, lovely. Oh, I also miss. That's like me when I carry Stevie around. <laughs> I also missed, so in addition to twisting all of the limbs and everything on this boy child, when the boy is three months old, his tongue would be forked and the warlock would apply a cream, a magic cream all over the boy's back to cause thick hairs to grow. Um, the Mbuche is fed solely by the warlocks and is only allowed to search for its own edibles if food is lacking in the cave. So remember, so eating flesh from the human cemetery, the human cemetery as opposed to the other cemeteries. I don't know, man. Pet cemetery. Where does it come from? Where does it go? Where did it come from, Cotton Eye Joe? <laughs> <laughs> remember how I said that the Brujos made the vests out of skin of dead virgins? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they get that from the people who were buried in the cemetery and then feed the leftover flesh to their mooches. Yeah. So the family of the victim has to guard the body of the deceased for three days after death to avoid it being dug up, skinned, and eaten. Kind of reminds me of the um, the Buddha, the evil eye. Yeah. So warlock, the warlocks have another companion. Uh, Lalvoldora, which roughly translates to ones who fly, are female relatives of members of the warlock coven. These women would be forced to drink a poison, which made them vomit up their organs. Oh. And now that they're nice and hollow, <laughs> 
they would transform into a black messenger bird used to pass information between different warlocks or spy on the villagers. Interesting. Luckily, she can go back to her where her organs are just hanging out and eat them and then turn back into a human at dawn. So it's not a permanent transformation. Superstition around blackbirds on this island still persists in some of the older people to this day. Huh. Um, then there's also El Calhueche, which is the ghost ship that is said to be manned by the ghosts of drowned sailors. The brujos are the only living creatures that are allegedly able to um, board the ship. Okay. Uh, despite never being seen in person, plenty of fishermen have heard the sounds of music and merrymaking through the mist in the middle of the ocean in the dead of night. Um, and it is said that the ghost ship was responsible for bringing contraband to the island for the warlocks to sell to the villagers in order to make their money. Um, people on the island state that strange lights, noises, and feelings indicate the presence of brujos or wizards. Um, the most prominent of the magical creatures on Ch- uh, Chiole must be nearby. So, like, if you start seeing weird shit or hearing weird shit or, like, you know, your skin, your hair stands on end or whatever, it means that one of these brujos is close. Oh, man. There's also another little bit of superstition that if you go somewhere on the island and you can't hear the ocean, that it's a bad omen and it means that there are warlocks nearby and you need to leave until you can hear the water again. Um, from my research, it seems like you can hear the ocean normally throughout the island pretty consistently, so it would be weird to go somewhere on this island and not hear the water lapping on the shore, um, because while it is, like, it's the, the biggest island of Chile and it's the second biggest island in South America, it's kind of, like, long and thin, it's not mm-hmm. wide, so there's not, like, a central central area that, like, you know, the water isn't near. Kind of like Chile, long and thin. Yeah. And so, obviously, as a result of it being an island, seafood and fishing has always been, like, one of the major uh, resources that they use, which is why they have so many of these legends and stuff around the water, because right. it's such a big part of their life. Uh, so what's the warlock's goal in all of this? It's pretty Um, much just to fuck with people. Oh. (laughs) So, um, and to make trouble. And that trouble appears to be slaughtering livestock, enchanting men and women, and killing their enemies. Who are their enemies? Uh, basically whoever makes them mad. Hmm. Like, it's revenge killing, basically. It's not, like, with a goal. It's revenge killing. Gotcha. Um, in 1880... However, the warlock group was pu- was brought into the public light uh, when they were taken to one of the world's last witch trials. So it is not, they weren't actually brought up on charges of witchcraft um, because the mayor at the time was just like, that's not a thing that exists. Like, <laughs> you guys are just being assholes and we're going to put you on trial for like the crimes you've committed for being assholes. Um, yeah, under the guise of being these magical people. Like, mm-hmm. you're just people who are taking advantage of everyone and causing trouble. You're not magic. You're not wizards. You're not... You didn't make a deal with the devil. Like, none of this is real. 
Um, so it is considered to be the last witch trial or one of the last witch trials, but it wasn't a witch trial in the normal sense that we have where it was just like, I saw Goody Price in the woods. <laughs> like, it's not, it's not that. It's not, you know, people making wild accusations. Right. There was a lot of political stuff going on at the time. Chile was like fighting a war on all sides at the time and it just kind of became one of those things where it's like well we need to clean up Chile too and like this we know this thing has been going on so like we're going to intervene and take care of it finally Mm -hmm. so Mateo Conicar which I know is not how you pronounce that um, a (laughs) former wizard who testified at trial uh, his allegiance to a magical leadership group called La Recta Provinci, or the Righteous Province, um, provided details on what the group was up to. Basically, they were, and uh, Matteo was like 70, this old dude, and he said that he had been involved with the Righteous Providence for like 30 years or something at this point. Wow. Um, So basically, they were selling protections from being attacked by the warlocks, and disposing of their enemies by poisoning or uh, sahaduras, which are magically inflicted, quote, profound slashes. So stabbing people to death with magic. And so they were they were running a protection racket. Yeah. Yep. And uh, the thing that I never thought I would have the opportunity to say, and I'm so excited to say it, the wizard mafia. <laughs> That's what I was going to. Mm hmm. That's what I was going to compare it to. Uh, would also demand annual tributes from the villagers to ensure their safety. So Chilean authorities uh, sentenced members of the Righteous Province uh, for crimes such as manslaughter, racketeering, and membership in a, quote, unlawful society. Two of the members of the Righteous Province were sentenced to serve 15-year terms for manslaughter, and 10 more were convicted of membership to a, quote, unlawful society. The old warlock, Mateo, was sentenced to prison for three years because of all the information that he brought to trial. He got a lighter sentence and was also 70. <laughs> um, and his brother, Domingo, got sentenced to a year and a half. Okay. Uh, however, the majority of sentences imposed were in 1881 overturned on appeal. Because there wasn't real evidence of the accusations. They didn't have bodies. They didn't. They couldn't prove that these guys were doing anything that was untoward. Um, and a lot of them just said, like, were, like, asso- like, kind of guilty by association with some of the people who mm-hmm. were in the Righteous Province. But they actually weren't in the Righteous Province and just kind of got lumped in. Um, there were tons of people that got brought in initially on this as far as like people put on trial but the majority of them they found were just like traditional healers and stuff of the indigenous people right and weren't actually like hurting anyone or doing anything nefarious they were just sort of like trying to help and being kind of like native indigenous shaman like making potions and stuff not necessarily hurting anyone not necessarily helping anyone but they weren't guilty of anything right um so while they were on trial more details about the secret society came out to start their initiation into the righteous province 
they had to de-baptize themselves in the freezing water and waterfalls in the river for 15 consecutive nights. They also had to run around the island three times, which this is not a small island by any means. Not the biggest in the world, but definitely not the smallest. Um, They had to dig up the body of a virgin, tan their skin, and make a fancy coat with it. They also had to kill a loved one and make a bag of their skin to carry their spell book in. They were given a special lizard that they wore tied to their head while it was alive in order to gain some special forbidden knowledge from it, like how to shapeshift into animals and unlock doors magically. Also make a deal with the devil. You know, normal shit. Um, There is also a strict code for the warlocks to follow that says there was to be no theft, no rape, and no eating of salt. That's sad. Indoctrination ceremonies were also concluded with a great feast of roasted babies. But they're unsalted, so... All of this considered, it is said that during the trial... The intention behind the organization changed over the decades and perhaps centuries that it existed. Um, Initially, the Brujos were there to stand against European forces that were trying to take away the culture of the indigenous people on the island. That's a noble cause. Yeah. And the intention became more darker and more sinister, focusing on revenge killing, cropped destruction, and selling their own special insurance against their own threats. Oh, wait, we're not done with the strange mythology of Chiloe Island. I got a couple more. It's not a ton, but here we go. So El Trauco, the troll, is a large, ugly male creature with magic breath. What does his breath do? What's your guess? His breath. What would this large, ugly male troll's magic breath possibly do? He plants flowers. Makes women want to fuck him. Oh, yeah, that checks out. Allegedly, he wears clothing made out of brush from the forest and seduces young virgin women into having sex. He has been blamed for unwed pregnancies for centuries. El Truco's wife... Another ugly troll named La Fiora has similar magical breath that attracts men using her breath and she bathes nude in the water to attract them to her. What does her breath do? Makes men want to fuck her. (laughs) And when they're done with the fucking, she either kills them or returns them home completely insane. And that is the information I could find. On the strangest island I have ever researched. (laughs) (laughs) And all of this is just this island. Like, it's not like the Brujos, like, were all over Chile or these trolls were all over Chile. It was, like, literally, like, just Chiloe Island with this, like, wizard mafia ghost ship and sex trolls. (laughs) I, I have no words. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to find like what I was going to do for Chile. And I was like, okay, look at true crime. That's always where I start. And then it was just like, I wasn't super enthused 
I wasn't super enthused about the true crimes because there were just like two guys and one of them was just like, I raped a bunch of people. And I was like, no, I really want to talk about someone who's raping a bunch of women. And uh, so I was like, haunted places in Chile. And then this showed up and it was just like, how about an island full of wizards? And I was like, yes, yes, please. Well, sorry to disappoint you. You're about to hear about some fucking mummies. I'm excited. So... 2,000 years before those losers, the Egyptians, finally decided to mummify their dead, the Chinchoro mummies existed in South South America. In South South Africa. Africa. I was like, whoa, did I really misunderstand the assignment? Absolutely not. (laughs) Uh, Their culture is so old. How old is it? (laughs) They were a pre-ceramic culture. Wow, that is old. I didn't re- like. Uh, I told this AJ, and he looked at me funny. I didn't like ever think that that existed. Like, not that, not that I didn't know that there was a culture before pre-ceramic, but like I didn't think of that as a telling of how old something was. Yeah, I mean, you have to know to kiln, right? And so I was like, it's a pre-ceramic culture. I was like, whoa. Anyway, uh, they inhabited. The Pacific coastal region of current north, uh, northern Chile and southern Peru. The Chinchoro culture is named after Chinchoro Beach, Arica, Chile, where the first of these mummies were discovered. The earliest evidence of these peoples was a shellfish midden, which I had to look up is basically just a pile of clamshells. Yeah, I don't know. But they found it and they were like, oh, people lived here. So the Chinchoro were skilled fishermen, obviously, uh, hunter-gatherers. It's thought that nearly 90% of their diet was seafood, which isn't really that shocking considering they lived on the coast. Uh, what really sets the Chinchoro apart, though, from other ancient cultures is the way they preserved their dead. Da-da-da-da-da-da. In 1914, Frederick Max Ule a German archaeologist, began his work in Arica uh, in Chile and was credited with uncovering nearly 282 fisher folk mummies of the Chinchoro region in 1917. Wow. I should note, these were not some hoity-toity kings or pharaohs. Uh, The Chinchoro peoples seemed to be quite egalitarian when it came to their dead. Uh, And I would then believe that they were probably an egalitarian type peoples yeah if you're gonna treat your dead nice you're probably gonna treat your living nice too i've discussed the difference between natural and anthropogenic mummies in previous episodes because you know i love talking about dead people so i'm not (laughs) going to go through that again but with that said it's thought that about 29 percent of the chinchoro mummies have been discovered or that have been discovered uh, are actually natural mummies Hmm. the oldest of these is the akaman uh he was radiocarbon dated Back to 7020 BC. That's like legit 9,000 years ago. Uh, And it's thought that the natural environment of this area provided the perfect conditions for natural mummification. The factors that would lead to this type of mummification in the area were extremely arid. It's an extremely arid climate. Uh, They have sandy soil and a lack of groundwater. Hmm. The heat, uh, while is significant, is not thought to have really factored in. as the book The Scientific Study of Mummies explains, uh, this, the sun's heat 
on the sand didn't actually extend to the depth of the interred bodies. So while it's warm there, it didn't extend down into the tombs, as it were. Hmm. Uh, The Chinchoro corpses were preserved in an extended position, so like laid out flat. Uh, They were buried directly in the sand without coffins and were usually wrapped up in Totora reed mats. Most of the bodies were recovered in or around beach sites. The largest group of mummies recovered in the area was a collection of nearly 100 anthropogenic mummies in the sand near a municipal water reserve uh, reservoir, which the fucking dream, dude, if I went to work and just found a hundred mummies. <laughs> I work at a water treatment plant right on a reservoir. If I found a hundred mummies, I would be fucking stoked. Anyway, sorry. Can you imagine like <laughs> the horror on your the rest of your <laughs> like my supervisor's face and I'd be like, Whoa, these are definitely anthropogenic mummies. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Well anyway. Many of these mummies were discovered with marine hunting tools like harpoons and fish hooks made of shells. Uh, they would have bone or cactus needles. This one I loved. A rib from a camelid or a sea lion with a handle. Thought to be like a tool for scraping uh, shellfish off rocks. Hmm. Uh, I also had to look up what a camelid was, uh, which is basically the class name for like llamas and alpacas. But yeah, they also had like uh, animal skins and hides and nets and all sorts of just like general grave goods. Uh, Nothing like the lady die though. Yeah. They had, a few t- they had a few signs of intentional cranial deformities. They're not like trepanation, like not like holes, but like I'll get into it a little bit more later. But like intentional brain damage, I guess you could call it. They like alive, the, so. the elongated skulls? No. Or not, not that? No. No. It's, when we get into the techniques of the mummification, you'll understand what they did. Okay. Uh, but 25% had heel healed skull fractures leading the experts to believe that there had likely been an increased amount of interpersonal violence most of them seemed to have been in good health with an average estimated life or age of death rather being around the age of 60 which isn't bad for a yeah like tribal for primitive culture yeah yeah at least half of the bodies found were of children or babies According to CNN reporter Mark Johansson, mummification began with babies and fetuses before progressing to adults. It's suspected that contaminated drinking water could have led uh, to the practice of mummification as researchers uh, found heavy amounts of arsenic uh, in the mummy's tissues. Mm-hmm. And it's an arsenic-dense desert, essentially. Bernardo T. Ariazza wrote the literal book on the Chinchoro mummies and has been leading the digs in the area for the last few decades. Uh, he was quoted as saying arsenic poisoning can lead to a high rate of miscarriages and infant mortality. And the sorrow over these deaths may have led to the community uh, starting to preserve these little bodies. The anthro or anthropogenic mummies <laughs> revealed complex processes that evolved with time and rivaled Egyptian methods. Even without pottery. (laughs) The first of these methods was the black technique. Racist. Oh, you wait till we get to the second one. The white technique. Let's say you're a Chinchoro person in 5000 to 3000 BC. 
Okay. And you get you get perished. You dead. <laughs> you get perished. With this technique, your body would be dismembered, with the head, arms, and legs all being removed from your torso to be dried. Oh, thanks. I hate it. Then your skin would be flayed, your skeleton removed from all your flesh, and then disarticulated. <sighs> Then you get... I'm not having fun on this vacation anymore. <laughs> then you get put all back together with clay and plant matter to fill out where the organs and flesh had once been and reinforced with sticks. So they're After... making scarecrows out of human bits. Scarecrows that they bury on the beach out of human bits. After that, <laughs> you get all put back together. Uh, uh-huh. Your body would be coated in a paste made of ash with animal hair and grass to fill in the gaps. Okay. At this point, you would be recovered with your own skin, or sometimes an animal skin if your skin didn't make it through the process, and then you're re-sewn back together. A clay mask was then put over your face with slits for the eyes and mouth to replicate a sleeping face. Along with a wig of human hair. Because they cut your hair off when they took your head off, clearly. And that is the black technique. Uh, Oh, lastly, this is the part that makes it black. Uh, Your body would be covered in black manganese. What does that do? Nothing that I could find. (laughs) Just made you black. Uh, The the next technique uh, is called the red technique. Uh, And that was used somewhere between 3000 and 2000 BC. So this is a little less involved. Let's say you're a chinchero in <laughs> three thousand to two thousand BC, and you I get don't perished. Uh, so this process is a lot less involved. It removes only your head. Oh, good. So they could cut it in half and remove your brain. I told you there was some wild, intentional <laughs> skull fracturing happening. Uh, so then, this is the best part of this technique. Then your face flesh would be put back on your cracked melon with the mask of black clay over your face. This version of the mask had a wide open mouth and eyes. I'm awake. That's what it said. Incisions would be made into your corpse to remove your organs and flesh, dry you up, and put you back or pack you in with plants and dirt and hair before sewing you back up. Then they put your head back on your body with a wig, and they cover you with red ochre. Everything except your face, which is covered in your black mask. I don't want my head... God, I hope that they didn't ever have, like, whoops, I'm in a coma, not dead. (laughs) Well, you would be dead when they started dismembering you. Well, yeah, I mean, you're gonna die pretty quick, but man... I guess if you're in a coma, hopefully you don't feel pain. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, the next technique was used uh, between 3000 and uh, 1300 BC. And this is called the mud coat. This sounds gross. It sounds like I already hate it. There is no more dismemberment. Oh, okay. No more organ removal. Your corpse would be dried and then covered in mud with fish paste or egg binder. Alright, yeah, that one doesn't sound as bad. Clay and mud were used by morticians to mold the mummies, and then they would paint them with paint and dye. Put them in sweet action poses. Yes. There Fist were other... The <laughs> there Don't were other less... 
You got the girl. <laughs> there were other less complex techniques that involved eviscerating the body cavity oh, and then filling your insides with hot embers to speed up the drying and desiccation process. Hate that. The progression of making a simpler process, though, led to the end of anthropogenic mummies, and since then, only natural mummies have been found. They basically got so lazy, they were like, eh, whatever, just put some mud on them and throw them in the dirt. <laughs> uh, there is some belief that this, uh, especially like the painting of the mud cover, uh, is like the first forms of religious art. Um, these mummies were seen as honored ancestors and uh, the the body was the living, it was like where the soul resided. Like, so it was the house for the dead. Uh -huh. um, there were even some discoveries that masks had later been repainted and so they were continued to be used in these rituals um, and that they were propped up in the sand when used in said rituals. Yeah. But... Here is the most interesting part of my rather short mummy story. The mummies are melting. What? <laughs> I'm sorry? <laughs> According to one Smithsonian article I found in the matter, the curator of the museum at the University of Tarapaca, uh, they noticed the skin on some of her mummy collection was decomposing and turning into a black ooze. Oh, good. The museum called on Harvard's uh, art artifact curator Ralph Mitchell for aid. Help me! My mummies are turning into black ooze. And so he arrived, the white savior, uh, and cultured the bacteria and found that common skin or uh, microorganisms were benign in the arid desert, uh, but had come out of their benign state and started chowing down on the collagen in the mummy viscera due to the increased humidity. Uh, Mitchell said, uh, how broad a phenomenon this is, we don't really know. The Arica case is the first example I know of deterioration uh, caused by climate change, but there is no reason to think that this is not damaging heritage materials everywhere. It's affecting everything else. Experts are uh, trying to find ways to encase and preserve these mummies, but they are sort of at a loss and it doesn't look good. The Erica case that Michael, uh, Mitchell spoke of in his quote, these mummies were actively deteriorating on their own or in their own climate due to the increased humidity and temperature. But don't mind my, my leftist politics. <laughs> climate train is just real motherfuckers. And that's the story of the Chinchero mummies and how they're melting. Climate change isn't talked about in the Bible, and we all know that the Bible is the only accurate piece of information. That's right. That ever existed, ever. That definitely has to do with modern world and America, you know, where the book is totally takes place. I will mention, just real quick. The Chilean mummies, these Chinchara mummies, are the oldest of the anthropogenic mummies. But Caitlin Doty did a video on these, and she actually goes into that there is an even older natural mummy, human mummy, located in Nevada. Interesting. Yep. I'm sure you'll be talking about that when we go to America next. There's not a whole lot on it, but I might uh, might do a Patreon on it. Oh. Patreon.com slash change All right. Well, thanks for joining us today as we discussed the odd and the oozing uh, in Chile. Um, next time, we will be heading north through Central America, where we will uncover the bizarre tales of Belize. 
We hope that you'll reach out to us with your own experiences. We want your stories, your questions, and your feedback. Just send us an email at strangeunusualpodcast at gmail.com. If you're sending a story, we just ask that you put listener story in the subject line so we can sort through those a little more easily. You can also find us on Instagram at strangeunusualpodcast, except for a strange underscore unusual underscore podcast. Or on our personal accounts, Roya Rampage and Calamity Casey, where we post the weird shit in our personal lives. You can find us on Twitter at underscore strange unusual, at Calamity Casey, and at Roya Rampage. We're on Facebook. Just search for the Strange and Unusual podcast. And you can also find us, as Roya so kindly mentioned, on patreon.com slash strange unusual, where we post bonus episodes. You get early access to the normal episodes. We'll have polls. All sorts of fun things like watch parties, uh, commentary on fun true crime, and I'm sure ghost hunting sort of shows. Finding Bigfoot is a favorite of mine. We should do ghost adventures. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, come visit us over there. We do understand uh, it is the time of the Rona, and numbers keep getting higher. So if you are unable to financially support us at this time, totally get that totally totally understand you're totally cool with us but if you could just uh if you could just uh reach out and uh share with share us with your friends uh give us a five star rating and a nice review on the apple podcast shit we don't even care if it's a shitty review as long as you leave us five stars uh we'll read it on air if you want but consent is important so if you don't want it just say so okay bye hey you know what what I think I did a pretty good job that time. I do, too. I still think it's funny that one time where I was just, like, completely ignored everything and just went, bye. (laughs)